We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good to see you today. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And if you're a guest, it's a joy to have you with us. Thanks for gathering with us today. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to hear how you came to join us. We'd love to answer any questions that you have. Uh, we have a connect table outside. We'd love to, to meet you there after the service, or you can go to EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. That's EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. Uh, you'll find a digital uh, welcome card there that you can fill out for us to get back in touch with you, as well as opportunity to sign up for other um, things such as groups, membership, uh, all those different aspects of how you could get connected with Emmaus. So please uh, take time to do that, but it's a joy to have you with us. Members, it's good to see you today and to seeing with you today. Hey, I've got two things for us before we jump into this, and, and they're simply um, prayer requests. And we're, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this beautiful text here in Romans chapter 12. So you could go ahead and be turning there as well. Today we're going to pray, uh, one, for a sister church here in our city, uh, Athens Church, uh, which is an Acts 29 church that launched last Sunday. Right, they launched last Sunday. They're here in the Northland with us. Uh, they are a, a Presbyterian church, a part of the Acts 29 um, network that we are a part of. And, uh, and the Lord's been doing some really neat things. The, their, the uh, husband and wife who are planting that, Justin and Jen Garrett, moved here right before COVID happened. In fact, they were attending Emmaus with us, just learning with us and kind of fellowshipping with us for the first like uh, two months before COVID happened last year. Uh, and then they have been in the process of planting in the midst of not being able to gather with anyone that they're trying to plant with. And the Lord has been really gracious to them. So we want to pray for this sister church that is partnering with us now here in the Northland for the sake of advancing the gospel. We also want to pray today for um, someone and his family who are dear to our church. Some of you know, know them, some of you um, do not, many of you do not, but uh, Kevin and Carrie Stratton. Uh, Kevin was one of our founding pastors here, him, myself, and, and Pastor Ronnie uh, founded Emmaus Church. Uh, and, and much of what we enjoy in terms of liturgy um, and the culture of Emmaus, Kevin helped to design and to work out. Well, um, just a few days ago, Kevin's mom uh, received a pretty significantly um, dire um, thyroid cancer um, diagnosis. And so uh, Kevin is flying to meet his family in Houston that she was rushed to um, for surgery this week in hopes of, uh, of the Lord doing something. And so their family's just in a, in a spot there. Uh, there are many people in Kevin's family who are not believers. He left our church to move back to Springfield in part because he wanted to be near his family who are not believers to continually share the gospel with him. And so we want to pray for his family and that not only would the Lord heal, not only would the Lord comfort, but we want to pray that the Lord would provide opportunity for Kevin um, to do what he has been passionate about in sharing the good news of Jesus with his family through the midst of this. So let's go to the Lord and pray for those two things, and then we'll read our text and jump into the sermon. Jesus, you are kind to bring us here today. We thank you for the joy of gathering. Father, we ask for your blessing on Justin and Jen Garrett and Athens Church today. Spirit, will you give their family endurance as they plant? Give their church unity in the gospel and zeal for holiness and mission? Use them to bring the lost to saving faith and to make disciples of all you entrust to them. We thank you for multiplying your church in Kansas City. We pray for Kevin and Carrie Stratton for their comfort in this time of trial. We pray for Kevin's mom to get good news, to have successful surgery for you to heal her. 
We thank you for the Strattons and what they have meant to our church. And we pray specifically, Father, that you would grant opportunity for gospel conversation and gospel fruit through this. And Jesus, what a joy to gather with your bride, the church, today. Father, what a blessing to be able to sing and to study and to confess and to take communion with your children today. Spirit, what a need we have of you today. The passage we're about to look at can easily entice us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, grin and bear discipline, and try really hard of our own strength. But Spirit, the life that Paul lays out in this text will not come to fruition by our own power. We need to live by the power of the Spirit. So Spirit, please meet us here today. Strengthen us for the life of a Christ follower that Paul lays out. Preach a better sermon than I prepared and empower us to live a better life than we could otherwise. We pray these things in your gracious name. Amen. We're back in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let's read it. We'll go through the end of this chapter. Romans 12, verse 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in the hope. Or excuse me, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We often choose to preach larger texts of Scripture here at Emmaus, and this week I have regretted that. I wish I had three weeks to unpack this passage. There's so much application to look at here. For that sake, um, I will stay in my notes tighter than I normally do, because there are too many rabbit trails that I just would naturally chase off Um, after in this text. We're going to get an overview of what this life looks like, what the Christian life looks like. For sake of review, if you remember Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul is unpacking the glorious gospel of Jesus. He said that we're all searching for and needing to find the righteousness of God. He said that we all are all, no matter our race, our culture, our gender, our social status, our morality, in the same place of need for God's righteousness and in the same place of inability to earn that righteousness of our own merits. He says we all, no matter our race, our culture, our gender, our social status, or our morality, can receive the gift of righteousness through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, 
who was sent by the Father, born in a manger, lived perfectly his entire life, gave up his life sacrificially on the cross as a payment for the sins of those who would believe, and then was buried. But three days later, rose again, and today sits at the right hand of God, making intercession on our behalf, and will one day return. Paul has unpacked that anyone who believes this can be saved. Romans 8 tells us that Christians are to live by the Spirit. The life that Paul is about to unpack for us is a life that must be lived by the Spirit. If you remember in Romans 8, he goes through and he begins to explain for us that you were dead to sin, now you're alive to Christ. You were a slave to sin, now you're a slave to Christ. And within this portion of of his passage, he's talking about how the Spirit enables us and empowers us to walk in this life of obedience as followers of Jesus. And when we get to Romans 12, he has begun to unpack for us the life of the one who follows Christ. Right? He's unpacking for us the life of, of the individual Christian. So each of us in this room who are Christians, who have placed our faith in Jesus, this is what our life should look like ever increasingly. And it's, he's unpacking for us what our corporate life should look like. So that we as a church are growing more and more into this likeness as the family of God, as the children of God, as the bride of Christ. This is the life in Romans 12 and the culture and the community that Paul calls us to if we have been saved through faith in Jesus. And he's made clear the only way that this happens is through the power of the Spirit. At the beginning of chapter 12, he calls us to be living sacrifices, to spend our days as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual act of worship. And if you remember two weeks ago before Easter, when we looked at the beginning of this chapter, he unpacked for us a little bit of what that looks like. That, that we are to be um, people of God who think less highly of ourselves than we ought, than we, than we ought to, and, and we think more highly of others than we naturally do. We begin to see the faith that we have and the gifts that God has given us for the body as exactly that, gifts that God has given us to be used for the church, and we see the benefit of those gifts in one another. And so now Paul continues this. He continues this in chapter 12, verse 9. And so as we get into this, let me give you a plea today. If your thought is, as we read through this, there is no way that I can live like that. There's no way that I can do that. That standard is too high for me. And I want you to know that you're right. You need the Spirit. It is impossible to live the way that Paul is calling us to live without the Spirit indwelling us and without living by the power of the Spirit. So we must pray. We must ask him to empower our faithfulness to this. And as we look at this text, if your thought is, okay, okay, I've I've got this, I can do this, I'm going to try really hard to be like this, then allow me to caution you that, that you cannot. You will fail. We will all fail, but the one who is not empowered and living by the Spirit in this pursuit will consistently and constantly fail at this. And as we look at this text, if your thought is, okay, I, I need to do this so that God will accept me, right? This is the life of the Christian. I must engage this. I must get better at this. He must accept so that he can accept me. Then hear me say this, Christian. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, 
in the person and the work of Jesus to make you right with God, then your heavenly father is eternally and completely accepting of you this moment. Your perfect pursuit of this life that Paul unpacks for us here does nothing to change God's acceptance of you. He accepts you because of your faith in Jesus. He accepts you because of the perfect life of Jesus and the sacrificial death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, not because we figure out Romans 12 in our daily lives. And so we do not engage this to earn acceptance, but because we have been gifted acceptance through faith in Christ. An unbeliever, please hear my plea for you today. If you hear this passage and you think, this is not my experience with Christians, They say this is what they're supposed to live like. I don't see them living like this. This is exactly why I'm not one of them. They're all hypocrites. And to you, I would say, you're right. We are. Far too often. Far too often. But unbeliever, this is the exact beauty of the gospel. That our assurance and our acceptance by God does not hang on the thread of our ability to perfectly keep the Christian life that Paul lays out for us here. Rather, it it hangs from the mighty strong arms of Christ as he bled from that tree. That's where our assurance of acceptance rests. That's the beauty of the gospel we invite you to believe today. All of us, even those of us with the greatest amounts of faith, will at times be hypocrites and not live according to what Paul lays out for us here. And yet the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he still accepts us. And we invite you into that today. Paul is going to help us see what it looks like to spend our days as living sacrifices. So let's look at this text. Verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let love be genuine. Literally, it means let love be without hypocrisy, full of authenticity. We live in a culture that is rich in manufactured affection, conditional acceptance, and social appearance. And yet we live in a culture that longs for true, authentic, genuine love. What does this love look like? Paul first says that it abhors, hates what is evil. And it holds fast to, clings to what is good. Strongly emotive language that he uses here. Hate, cling, are strong words from Paul. In other words, right off the bat, if you want to test whether or not you're living a life of genuine love, you could look to the affections of your heart. Do you hate what is evil? Does it, does it cause something to rise up in you of disgust, hatred, anger towards that? Do you love what is good, what is pure, what is helpful? I'm afraid that some of us, though, church, are clinging to what is evil and hating what is good. We cling to our addictions. We cling to our porn. We cling to our anger. We cling to our bitterness. 
We cling to our pride. We cling to our superiority. We hate confession. We hate repentance. We hate self-sacrifice. We detest gentleness and kindness. We avoid the gathering of the saints. We hate giving away our money to those in need. We despise showing grace to those who hurt us. Far too many of us are clinging to what is evil and hating what is good. And Paul goes, genuine love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. So we must look at our lives, examine our lives, and see what am I holding on to? What do I love and what do I hate? As Bird says, authentic love repels malice, but magnetically clings to things that are good. Repels, it pushes off genuine love, will push off what is evil, what is wicked. It has no place around genuine love, and yet genuine love clings, magnetically attracts what is good. Origen said, a person who does not hate the vices cannot love and preserve the virtues. You must hate the vices to love and preserve the virtues. Genuine love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. He goes on. Genuine love loves one another with brotherly affection. Outdoes one another in showing honor. Tertullian said, see how they love one another is what pagans should be saying when they observe an authentic Christian family. See how they love one another is what pagans should be saying when they observe an authentic Christian family. The idea that Paul calls us to is the love of a family for each other, brotherly affection. I understand in a room this size with this many people that there are vastly various experiences of familial love. My heart hurts as I hear the stories of many of you who did not grow up in families of love. Fathers who were angry, mothers who were detached, siblings who abused you. Paul is calling us to a familiar love, a brotherly love, as it should be. One of acceptance and affection. One of care and provision. Encouragement. Correction, protection, and honor. What if our biological families looked like that? What type of healing would that bring in the lives of a whole generation if the family, if the Christian families alone looked like this in the home? And what kind of change would it make in our society if the church family looked like this? where we loved each other with affection and protection and care and provision. And he says, outdo one another in showing honor. All of the competitive people in the room just perked up. In the words of Barney Stinson, challenge accepted. Outdo one another in showing honor. He goes, compete with each other and showing honor to each other. It's the idea that we would value others over ourselves. It's the idea that we would consider others better than ourselves, treat others better than ourselves, look out for others, speak honor about others and about ourselves. This would have been incredibly countercultural in Rome. 
Paul was writing this into an honor-shame culture that held extreme value in pursuing your own honor. And yet he tells them, do not pursue your own honor, but the honor of others. Practically, he was calling slave owners to honor their slaves, men to give honor to women, Romans to give honor to Jews, and Jews to give honor to Gentiles. Outdo one another in showing honor. He was calling Christians to seek the honor of each other, not the honor of themselves. And if we're to be honest, this is incredibly countercultural for us today as well. We live in a culture that seeks to honor ourselves first, to buy acceptance, to earn approval, to gain a following, to, to build a platform. And Paul would say, spend your life honoring others, not drawing honor to yourself. We so often do this. We so often pursue an honoring of ourselves through a dishonoring of others. We attack others' opinions and their beliefs. We pick apart others' intentions. We do not give the benefit of a doubt to each other. We drag others through mud to prove our thought, our belief, our intention, our goal is better than theirs. And Paul goes, stop it. Stop that. Seek to honor each other. In fact, outdo them in honoring each other. When the church and the Christian are living in genuine love, they will hate what is evil, cling to what is good, have brotherly affection for one another, and consistently seek to honor one another. Verse 11 and 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So he begins in verse 11 by saying, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Church, we, we live in a culture that enables, that readily enables slothfulness in life. We live in a culture that readily enables complacency in life. Many of us in this room have more money, more luxury, more comforts, more security, more health care, more toys, more entertainment, and more opportunities than 95% of the world will ever have. And all of this, though not intrinsically bad in and of itself, easily enables a slothfulness and a complacency. Life does not feel urgent to us. Death does not feel certain for us. Our needs, and therefore the needs of others, do not feel life-threatening, usually not even comfort-threatening. We have an abundance of resources, financially, materially, academically, and even spiritually. And all of this can cause our service to God to seem unimportant and non-urgent. Sharing the gospel can wait. Caring for the poor is not that important. Pursuing holiness is not necessarily a matter of faithfulness. Prayer is not a needed practice. I want to urge us, church, 
that Paul is saying here, have a spirit-filled love for God, his ways, and his people, and run with zeal towards that. Don't waste your life in pursuit of that. If you look at your life and feel no passion for God, if you look at your life and feel no zeal for his ways, if you look at your life and feel no love for his people, no desire or urgency to obey him and to spend your life in service of him, then you need a spirit-filled zeal for that. You cannot manufacture that on your own. You need the spirit to give you a zeal for the Lord, for serving him. Ask him to. Ask him to. He tells us in verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, hope, endurance, prayerfulness. The Christian will face tribulation. All of us will. The Christian has been called by Paul in the scriptures here to an eternal hope in the midst of our tribulation. If you remember, even in this very book of Romans, he calls us to, to look eternally, to, to look to what is beyond this life as hope in the midst of our tribulation, in the midst of our trials. He says that the very trials and the sufferings that we face today pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us. Because of this, the Christian life, or excuse me, the Christian must live in constant prayer in order to walk in this hope and in this endurance. Right? You don't just walk in a hopeful endurance in the face of tribulation without an active prayer life. Some of you are drowning in tribulation today. Some of you are overcome and you've lost all hope of rescue, of freedom, of joy, of peace. Perhaps your tribulation is persecution. Perhaps it's relational tensions. Perhaps it's sickness. Perhaps it's sin weighing upon you. You're drowning in it. And there's no endurance in the fight for faithfulness through the midst of it. You don't even have any hope that you'll ever get to the other side of it. And in the midst of this, we spend our days prayerless not bringing our needs and our tribulations before the Lord, not petitioning him for strength, not asking the spirit to infill us that day for the fight that is ahead. Your hope and your endurance and your tribulation are fueled from your prayer for the power of the spirit and the Lord's grace in your life. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul expects the church to put love into action by sharing material needs, including their own houses and lives with those among their own church. This requires church, this call to generosity, this call to caring for the needs of others, this call to hospitality requires that the people of God live below their means so that they have means to give. This requires that the people of God live graciously and generously with what God has given them. This requires that the people of God consider the mission of God and the people of God when they consider how to use their resources. 
What has the Lord given you, and how are you to use that for the people of God and the mission of God? This requires, church, that the people of God are active enough in community with the other people of God to know their needs. Really hard to meet someone's needs if you don't know needs that are there to be met. So we must live closely with each other to know when one another are in need so that we can then pursue how to use what the Lord has given us to meet those needs. You don't just wake up on a Monday with an opportunity before you and you just decide, today I'm going to be generous. It's practice. It's a transforming of your mind, as we saw at the beginning of Romans 12. It's a making decisions along the way to enable yourself to be in a place of generosity. What does this look like in our church family? Well, one, it looks like giving to the church. Right? By giving to your church, or if, you, if this is not your home church, then your home church. By giving to your church, you are providing for the spiritual care, counsel, teaching, and shepherding of God's people. By giving to your church, you're providing for the physical needs of God's people as we are able to help those who have needs. And so it looks like giving to your church for the spiritual and physical care of one another. But it also looks like giving beyond your church, outside of your church. Some of you in this room support missionaries. Some of you in this room financially support families in our church who are in a hard season. Like there are literally members in our church who monthly give to other members in our church simply because they found themselves in a hard season financially. Some of you provide meals for others. You loan your cars to others. You've given your cars to others. You give rooms to stay to those in need. This is what Paul's talking about. Showing hospitality looks like opening your home, your meals, your time to those in need. So church, I'm praying for us. I'm praying that we would be a church who grows ever more generous with our dollars and our spaces. With the money that the Lord has given you and the space that he has given you, would we be more and more generous with that? Briefly on the flip side of this church, you must learn to walk in openness about your need. The church is not called to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and fight life by ourselves. We do it in community. And if you have a need, make your need known so that the Lord may bless you through his people. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In Matthew 5, Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How countercultural is this for us? In Rome, they were facing various kinds of persecution. Social ostracism, slander, boycott of business, legal action. They faced arrest, imprisonment, beatings, and even death. And Paul tells the church to bless those who persecute them instead of cursing those who persecute them. Church, many of us in this room, many of us in Christianity in America, lose our minds if someone simply makes fun of us for our faith. Incredibly practical. 
Some of you, church, just need to get rid of your social media. We live in a culture that has manufactured a detached and impersonal tool for cursing those who disagree with us. Some of you slander and mock and humiliate and curse politicians, political groups, celebrities, news channels, and even other Christians who disagree with you, let alone those who show some sort of persecution towards you. You spend your life in anger and aggression towards those who would hurt you for your faith. I'm not making light of the persecution that you face. There are various kinds of persecution as we've already seen here. Many in our culture slander Christians. Many in in our culture seek to strip religious freedom, seek to silence our biblical belief on sexuality. Some in our culture have even used the pandemic to enforce restrictions upon the people of God that if they were to be honest, they've wanted to enforce for a long time. All of this is true. And this is not a sermon to make light of, or to make little of the persecution that we face. It's not to say that we do not do all that we can in voting and in petitions and in speaking for religious freedom. But church, the Christian cannot let hurt and hate cause us to lash out and cursing towards those who persecute us. We are not the judge and jury. We are not the executioner. We cannot live in this state. Our mission should not be to humiliate or dismantle another's life. Not only should we not engage in the actions, we must prayerfully not engage in the wish for it. Longing that their life would be destroyed. Cursing them within us while smiling to them without. Do not underestimate the ministry of one who is persecuted and yet responds with blessing. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. The members of the church, the people of God, are to share in the highs and the lows of each other's lives. When a child is born, we rejoice. When a job is landed, we rejoice. When sin is confessed, we rejoice. When a father dies, we weep. When a job is lost, we weep. When sin is committed, we weep. In church, in order to weep and to rejoice with one another, we must be close enough to our brothers and sisters to know their highs and lows and to have care for their highs and lows. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now here, Paul is not calling for uniformity, right? We do not all have to have the same thoughts or positions on the same topics, the same cultures, yet what he's doing is calling us to a pursuit, a unified pursuit of peaceful relations. That you and I both agree to work tirelessly at living in unity in the gospel and love of each other. 
Paul will unpack this more for us in chapter 14 when we get there. But for now, church, we must be committed to living in harmony with each other even when we disagree with each other, and we will. A commitment to harmony is a commitment to see, confess, and repent of our arrogance, our bitterness, our hatred, our pride, our high-mindedness. Right? We, as it said at the beginning of chapter 12, we're not to think more highly of ourselves, and we ought to. Paul says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It is really hard, church, to live in harmony with those you disagree with when you only surround yourself with those who you do agree with. It is really easy to villainize those whom we do not humanize. And it is really difficult to humanize those whom we won't associate with. So Paul calls us to actually spend time with the lowly, with the poor, with those who are not like us, with the hurting, with the distressed, with the weeping, with those we disagree with, with those from a different party, that we associate with them, and that we show love towards them. John Newton on the Christian's response to another Christian that they have controversy with. So when one Christian has controversy with another Christian, John Newton said this, the Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his heirs, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. What if we show this kind of love and grace Tenderness and acceptance to those we disagree with, to those we differ from. Verses 17 through 20. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. The Greco-Roman culture is one of retaliation, an eye for an eye. Aristotle said, to take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble. And further, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. Harsh, unwise words from a man who was supposedly pretty wise. It was considered weakness, and you should be ashamed if you let someone else take advantage of you. Our culture is much the same. Many of the movies and the books we love are books of revenge. Movies of revenge. Edmund and the Count of Monte Cristo. 
Denzel in Man on Fire, Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, You Killed My Father, My Name is Inigo Montoya, You Killed My Father, Prepare to Die. Even in our comedies, revenge is a theme. I get it, don't you? If someone hurts my son, my daughter, my wife, everything in me wants to lash out. But Paul here points to a different picture of the Christian life. A different picture of strength. A different picture of retaliation. The Christian is not to repay evil with evil. As Bird says, the spiral of pain and loss would only be amplified if everyone attempted to exact revenge upon their adversaries. We aren't to perpetuate a cycle of violence and victimization. The Christian is to pursue what is honorable or good, it says, in the sight of all. What if church, instead of Christians getting all worked up and angry and vengeful when wronged, what if we extended grace and gave kindness truly offered forgiveness. The Christian, Paul says, as far as humanly possible, is to pursue living in peace with others. Jesus even said, blessed are the peacemakers. What if we woke up in the mornings with the mission of being peacemakers in a highly volatile world? What if our goal in the day was not to sow further division, but to bring peace? Being a peacemaker church does not mean giving up our biblical values for the sake of peace. It means not expressing our biblical values in a way that unnecessarily sows rage and to not retaliate with spite and hatred, with cutting and with slander when our biblical values are challenged. Pursuing peace does not mean ignoring justice. But from our heart to our actions, Paul calls us to be a people who pursue first, if at all humanly possible, peace with one another. The Christian can live this way, Paul tells us, because vengeance is God's. The Christian can live this way because vengeance is God's and God is perfectly just. When the Christian chooses not to retaliate, he is not ignoring sin and evil. When the Christian chooses not to retaliate, she is not giving a pass to evil. When the Christian chooses not to retaliate, they are in fact displaying a grand faith in a God who will seek eternal justice. And Paul takes it a step further. Not only does he call us not to retaliate, he calls us to do just the opposite. Instead of feeding our enemies insults, we feed them food. Instead of giving our enemy poison, we give them water. We literally care for the needs of our enemies, caring for them as one whom we would love, offering them kindness. We do this in prayerful hope that the grace and kindness of God will lead them to repentance. And we do this in prayerful hope that if they do not repent, the Lord will fulfill justice. We know this. It is no act of faith to lash out in revenge, church. And yet it is an act of much faith 
to trust God to avenge us. So we trust him. And then in verse 21, it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This church is genuine love. Christian, this is authentic love. This is love without hypocrisy. This is a life of love that only the spirit-filled Christian can live. And so to the Christian in the room, to the ones who have placed their faith in Jesus, I ask you today, how does your life compare to what Paul just explained? To what extent do we need to confess and repent and ask the Spirit to empower us to this life? to the life of genuine love for the glory of God. I would be greatly missing in my conclusion if I did not point out that this is how Christ has loved us. His love was genuine. He hated what was evil and clung to what is good. He loves us with brotherly affection, even adopting us into our family. We who have faith are his brothers and his sisters. His love will not be removed from us. He showed honor to others, though all honor was due him. He was full of zeal for his father. He continually pulled away in prayer. He endured in the face of tribulation, even death. He had no place to lay his head, yet he invited his brothers and sisters into his life. He now prepares a place and a feast to show hospitality to those whom he has graciously saved. We see Jesus rejoice with those who rejoice, like at the wedding feast. We see Jesus weep with those who weep, like with Mary and Martha when Lazarus died. He was not haughty, but humbled himself to the point of death. And from the very cross in the face of his persecutors, he asked the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. He associated with the lowly, the poor, the sick, the diseased, the outcast, the prostitutes, and the sinners. And Christian, though you spent your life in rebellion towards him, and though some days you still continue to live your life as if he doesn't even exist, he has shown no revenge towards you. But in grace and faithfulness, he today intercedes on your behalf before God the Father. Paul is calling us to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus. This is our Jesus. So lift your head up, Christian. Look to him and find strength to live by the Spirit. Genuine love is what we have been shown, and it is what we are sent to show. An unbeliever, this is our Jesus. Do you want him? Do you want this kind of love and acceptance Grace and kindness towards you? He says, all you must do is come. He will not turn you away. Come to Jesus in faith and be saved today. We would love to talk to you about that more after the service. Find me outside. I'd love to have that conversation with you. Today we get to celebrate communion. Because Jesus, being full of genuine love for us, broke his body and shed his blood. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.